When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Alright guys, welcome to Conspiranormal. It's your friendly host, Adam. And Serfiel is on the line. Hello. And guys, we've got uh, someone that I think needs no introduction, but um, we've got David Metcalf on the line. David, welcome back okay. to Conspiracy Normal, man. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah, it's good to have you back. Last time we had you on was last May, I think. So yeah. it's over a year, and uh, I had the privilege of hanging out with you in georgia last year when we did the paramania thing i was up there with josh kutchin and tim banal and all those guys and uh now we got you on for the second time and actually we kind of figured it out like uh that the episode we had you on that was rob's last show Sergio, with us oh wow well, last you know I guess a show as a he's, producer. He's still living. He's just not on the he's, show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have to make that distinction. It's like, sometimes we'll say like, Rob is no longer with us. <laughs> like, like, no, you know, he's not dead. He's very much alive. He just, uh, he's just not doing the podcast anymore. So, um, you know, I just kind of like have a, like a, just a general kind of grab bag of topics, David. We kind of looked at some of your, well, Serfiel can tell you what he got some some of your articles and such, and we'll just kind of go through some of that stuff. But I got some other questions too, and some other topics that we can that we can um, we can talk about. But yeah, great. I th- really, what? Um, well, where did you get those, Serfiel? Those? Oh, those, those are articles? just on his academia.edu page. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you went stuff- for the the fancy stuff. The fancy stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll talk you know, like the Craigslist conjurations and all that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, well, uh, you've been kind of a, we, we talked a little earlier uh, about how, uh, I guess you're in a new, new area of Georgia still though now. And um, you've kind of b- become like a anthropologist of kind of like this rural magic and traditions and, and popular magic traditions too. Um, things that might be at a Walmart or you call them, you call them these dollar store grimoires, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so yeah. a lot of, a lot of this kind of revolves around that and your um how how your your journey into studying this this kind of stuff has come from really you would say that it comes from your move to the south a lot of it. Uh well in part yes. Um it my move to the south was fortuitous in allowing me uh better access I think to a lot of it. Um specific especially the lottery dream book stuff yeah um, 
which are the, you know, it's a, a book you can get at the gas station, um, at least down here. You can also get them in Detroit. I met some ladies from Detroit who were quite fond of them. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a book that has some information on numerology, some information on um, kind of thinking about your dreams in a psychic way. And then most of the books are just lists of words that you might have in your dream, you know, like a ring, car, like whatever. And then it has a number associated with it that you can play on the lottery. And so these things have been around since the late 1800s when they were policy um, books. So policy is an old form of the lottery that was uh, prior to the kind of official state lottery stuff. And they've been adapted now to be able to to you know be used with your regular uh, lottery numbers and that. So um, that came from a southern thing. But, you know... I, it's it's kind of weird. My family is uh, on my dad's side is from Kentucky, right? So I always kind of had this uh, a little bit of kind of like southern influence floating in and some of that like folklore in that. And so I've always been really interested in in the kind of um, you know like passed down knowledge, different kind of like superstitions and and that kind of thing. And then um, in college, I actually did study uh, witchcraft traditions and comparative religions. And ritual, so um, along with cognitive philosophy, so kind of bridging, um, you know, how we construct reality, and then also kind of the ritual components of that, and then how different traditions have looked at, you know, um, magic or, or psychic influences and in that. So um, it's it's always kind of been there, um, but since I've moved to the south, I've been able to live in rural areas and get to know people and get to actually have conversations with folks that had, um, you know, whether it was their father or their great, great grandfather or great, great uncle who actually were practitioners of various forms of folk magic. And so it's really deepened my, you know, what was kind of like you read that in a book, um, you know, or you kind of, you, you see it in like a, a folklore documentation and that versus actually being here where I can talk to people who are like, Oh yeah, my great, great uncle used to do healing or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's just, it's just really, really prevalent in the area that you live in mm -hmm. much yeah. more so than it would be in some, in some kind of urban center. Yeah. And that's, so, and that's kind of the thing. So I learned the techniques for discovering this stuff up in Chicago, right? Like I was in, you know, I was living, um, in the western suburbs of Chicago and I would go downtown and one of the things that fascinated me is that you can look at the architecture and see theosophical influences where I spent my teenage years was uh, a town over from the Theosophical Society and also the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College so two, you know, two of my areas the grocery store grimoires and, and that come from the, the Billy Graham side and then the Theosophical Society is kind of the magic side um, but yet, they were yet, yet both sorcerers, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, really yeah. think about it. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, the two ends of the two ends of sorcery, you know. So um, the uh, so that was really prevalent in my like my teenage years. The those kind of influences and being able to go over there and and kind of see the stuff. Um, but uh, you know, I'd go down to Chicago, and Frank Lloyd Wright was uh, really interested in theosophy, and a lot of his designs were based on theosophical principles. Really, uh, I didn't I know that. Yeah, I think he actually oh. married uh, um, one of Rorick's secretaries, I believe, or Gurdjieff. Wow. It was either Gurdjieff okay. or Rorick. Um, wow. But he was he was married, or 
there's some relationship there. I, mean, I don't know the details uh, enough to, to be exact on that. But So he had a lot of influence from those traditions in his stuff. So you'd go down in Oak Park, um, and there were, you know, the Frank Lloyd Wright buildings. And knowing that kind of background to it made it a lot more interesting. And then when I was in downtown proper, you would see different Pythagorean things on the buildings. And you would see these influences from um, the... The kind of neo-Egyptian period that happened around the times of the World's Fair at the late 1800s and early yep. 1900s, um, and when you know Chicago was an occult publishing center, mm-hmm. where you had people like William Walker Atkinson and L. W. DeLorence publishing books that would influence kind of the the culture throughout the United States that led into New Thought and that led into um, you know, even like salesmanship kind of books and stuff like that. And so, oh, yeah. you know, it was just really fascinating to me to see these kind of remnants in the architecture and that. And I became absolutely obsessed with William Walker Atkinson and uh, DeLorence. And one of the things that DeLorence did, um, L.W. DeLorence was a publisher who started out um, publishing hypnotism and kind of like positive thinking sort of stuff, but then also found that it was very... Uh, it was it was very profitable to be able to break international copyright and started publishing uh, Golden Dawn material, um, you know, and some of the folks that were associated with Golden Dawn, like A.E. Waite and Frater Akkad, publishing those guys in the U.S., um, sometimes stripping their name off of it and putting his own on and his own intro, and he would just publish their book under the DeLorence imprint. He also sold uh, candles magic rings talismans um he had this massive like literally a phone book size catalog that he shipped um throughout the the caribbean throughout the south and even into uh, west africa and so he had this massive influence in the um throughout the 20th century in terms of sculpting people's ideas of magic and um he had a book called the the great uh, it's the great book of Hindu magical art or something like that, which is, again, a telephone-sized book where he just crammed a bunch of different, um, a lot of it plagiarized, um, you know, some of it plagiarized from Kardec, some of it plagiarized from um, Barrett and uh, Barrett's The Magus, um, some of it plagiarized from A.E. Waite, some of it he wrote himself. Um, and it was just this hodgepodge of all these different influences crammed into this book. So he he was able to kind of influence all these different things with this uh, sort of pirate uh, mentality of publishing. But, you know, to go down to the South and to see these things actually sort of still living, you know, that were obviously influenced by his work was pretty amazing. So there's been a continuation, you know, from Chicago down to the South. Well, and just because it's the Bible Belt doesn't mean that all of these occult movements did not have any influence and sounds like in some instances they have a more of a continuing influence than in other places. Oh, absolutely. Well, you have, you know, um, with, with the grocery store grimoire thing, it's a, it's a kind of joking name that I put on it because, um, when you see in news, news reports of exorcism and that it's always focused on Catholicism and, yeah. You know, they're always talking about Catholic exorcism. But um, my brother used to work for uh, Pat Robertson in the 700 Club, and he was a he was a, a 
master up in Virginia, and he did uh, what was called theophastic counseling and deliverance ministry, which is a form of uh, exorcism. And so, you know, I knew that this wasn't just a Catholic thing and that it, it had a little bit more uh, spread than that, you know. But when uh, I was at Walmart one day and I noticed that they actually had books on spiritual warfare and exorcism, which were, I mean, it was it was occultism, right? And yeah. it, it was lists of names of demons, how to deal with those demons, how to how to you know see those demons or recognize them, and that's a grimoire. I mean, that's what a grimoire right. is, you know. And the tradition, the grimoire tradition, comes out of the the early exorcist traditions. These were books of conjuration and exorcism. Exorcism actually uh, has a similar etymology to conjuration, because you you know you conjure the spirit into the person and then uh, expel them. You know, so uh, it was amazing to me to see these books, which were just flying under the radar, that you could pick up in Walmart, and you know I found out you could pick them up in the grocery store. Um, you know, and no one would look twice at them because they were these Christian books. Um, but they were essentially, you know, it was, <laughs> they were, they were books on the, you know, on, on conjuration and, and evocation and, and exorcism. So that, that became really interesting to me to see these contemporary versions of grimoires in a still living tradition, um, you know, that were just flying under the radar that, uh, weren't being looked at really as, as what they were, which were books of, of magic, you know. Which which particular ones kind of stood out to you the most? Um, kind of more more interested you? Well, there. I mean, they actually have some of them have designs that are very similar to a grimoire, like um, prayers that route demons, mm-hmm. um, which is by uh, John Eckert. Uh, was actually designed to look like a leather bound book with a a metal mm-hmm. clasp on it and jewels on the front of it. Um, and John wow. Eckert's a uh, charismatic pastor from up in um, the Chicago area, um, but you know that. And it also interesting to me was that in a lot of the cases with the spiritual warfare stuff, you saw the same transmission lines that you were seeing with Delorence, where Delorence was publishing in Chicago. It was being uh, you know shipped to West Africa. Well, in the spiritual warfare tradition, a lot of the West African traditions that were influenced by Dolores were then feeding back to the uh, Pentecostal and charismatic groups in the United States through missionary work and through kind of, uh, you know, transatlantic uh, conversation that was going on between charismatic groups in Africa and then charismatic groups in, in the United States. So you saw these this really interesting kind of like cross communication going on, and this uh, over time this pretty detailed uh, conversation on these traditions, all of which centered around um, spirit summoning, working with spirits. You know, whether it was the the quote unquote magician working with them in one way um, versus the exorcist who was working to get rid of them. You know, I have I have noticed um, in my own kind of studies of a lot of this. And I've kind of come from a different viewpoint. And now I'm kind of just getting to the point where I'm seeing that a lot of this is folk magic. And there is, I come, I came from the viewpoint of looking at this like as a Christian and seeing some of these occult influences as something negative. That's kind of how I started. Now I kind of think differently about it and just realize that there's an overlap. Um, but I, I have noticed, I have noticed that too. 
and there seems to have been like with something a good example I think was like the blood moons when that, yeah, was, going, the, when that was going on right and I would have the John covered, Haggy book right? the John Haggy book with that cover yeah that's I, I would have conversations with um, Dr. Future about this and we would talk about how you know apparently it's astrology and numerology are bad for the for for these people unless it has that kind of judeo-christian kind of overtone to it then it's okay but essentially with like the blood moons that's what you're dealing with is like astrology and numerology it's essentially the same thing right absolutely well and that's you know I've actually had I've had similar conversations with folks who knew um, the uh, evangelical guy uh, Chuck Missler, and oh, yeah. I had pointed yeah. out that Chuck Missler had used Kabbalah, you know, and they were like, no, 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 no. He he saw <laughs> he looked at Kabbalah, and I was like, he was doing straight up Kabbalah. Like, come on, like let's be honest, like he's doing Kabbalah. Yeah. Like this is what Kabbalah is. Yeah. Like you know, if you're not if you're you know, if you're not being prejudiced against Kabbalah, like, and you look at what Chuck Missler's doing, um, it, he's doing Kabbalah. And there's, you know, and that's what's interesting to me because then Chuck Missler gets into stuff that, um, you know, it bleeds into the the Collins Elite kind of stuff, right? Because Missler was a defense contractor and he was he worked in the uh, the defense industry. Um, and then you know you've got Redfern's kind of mythology of the Collins Elite. Um, and so, you know, all this stuff kind of blends in together and uh, a lot of the, the, the details of it sort of get lost in the, you know, lost in the soup there. But um, it's really fascinating. I mean, you know, uh, and you know Tom Horn's work, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, yeah. Um, oh, I mean, absolutely. That, that stuff, what did Dr. Future call it? The grindhouse of the grindhouse yeah. of evangelism or something. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 <laughs> it, it really is. And um, it's interesting, David, because really, honestly, uh, Tom Horn for a good while was kind of like a big influence on me. Right. Because he really, like, L.A. Marzulli was too on some of my thoughts on like the whole aliens or demons stuff. But uh, Tom Horn was the first one that I ever heard on, because I had just become a Christian at that point, um, probably a few years before, and I was just kind of like just finding my legs with it. And all of a sudden, I'm blue- I had the subscription to Coast to Coast at the time, and Tom Horn was on, and he's talking to George Norrie. And like everything he was saying about the demons and aliens are demons and the alien abductions are are all part of our, our demonic thing. And I guess some stuff about Jack Parsons was in there and all that yeah, kind of interesting yeah. stuff. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, I was like, I was in there like, I'm about, God, I was like 27. I was just like, yeah, this is, yeah, th- th- right on. This is it. You know, I found my answer. And, um, since then I've kind of realized all that stuff is kind of, you know, it's it's a little more it's a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> but it's but like the, it, it's yeah. giving that simple it's giving that simplistic answer. But also, you know, Tom Horn is very much. I mean, he's he he weaves in all this kind of conspiracy narrative, and oh, yeah. he weaves in all this demonic kind of stuff, and he makes all these he makes all these predictions about Apollyon. 
and uh, 2012, and then that didn't happen, and then it went over the 2016, and then he 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 really hopped on the popes, like the uh, the last pope. You yeah, know, the exo and stuff, right? right. All that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, that he did with Chris Putnam, rest in peace. And you know, uh, yeah, Horn. I actually got to meet Tom Horn at one point uh, because Mike spoke at the future the future Congress or whatever oh, it was called. Right. Well, yeah. and he and Mike's in um, uh, the Pandemonium's engine. Yep. With a great with a great piece on Nimrod as a uh, as yeah. a Nephilim super soldier. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and all, yeah. all the all the Nephilim stuff is 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 mixed in there, and I, just like funny stuff, man. I, I just like I'm kind of reminiscing on some of this, but like at the first at the first Future Congress, I didn't go to the second. I drove with this guy I barely knew and his daughter. Cool dude. And we ended up going to Branson, okay? And Branson is like the holy land for these people now, you know? Uh, which is interesting in and of itself. Right. When you think about, like, the like, <laughs> Sergio, was it like the holy, like, the Garden of Eden for the Mormons in Missouri or something no. like that? Well, or Zion, was it Illinois or it was somewhere. Well, there's, there's, a few, there's a few, yeah. Uh, contenders for Zion in America, but uh, it's also a it's the rival country music capital as well. So that's right, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So I drove from Nashville to Branson, which is like the <laughs> which is like some kind of a mystical journey. Yeah, I was going to say. But, that's a <laughs> but when I get when I got there and I and I signed in, like they were giving numbers to people, and like uh, my number was six six six. Wow. Yeah. Did you get like pulled out of line and they were like, you I looked at him. I said, Hey, that's not good. Just make me six, six, seven or something, you know? Wow. You were the chosen one. You, you came as the, the Nephilim chosen one. Was... Well, a lot, a lot of this, uh, openness to the supernatural really is a characteristic that, uh, you talk about. It's really characteristic of this, uh, new apostolic reformation, uh, yeah. movement for people who don't know what that what that is uh, can you kind of give a, a brief background on it yeah so tom horn actually uh i was surprised but tom horn critiques the new apostolic reformation um yeah. he he at times has said that he's not a it's called dominionism um dominionism is the idea that uh they will uh bring about god's kingdom on earth through conquering what are known as the seven mountains and the seven mountains are like education, government, arts, um, uh, the you know basically all the things that make up society, right? So, and they've broken it down into a convenient seven mountain formation. You conquer those mountains, you're at the highest point, and you rule that. And basically, what that means is that you infiltrate culture at every every area where there's a, a leverage to influence it, and you get your people in there, and then you push an agenda. Um, and so um, the New Apostolic Reformation is uh, sometimes it's called third wave um, charismatic or third wave Pentecostalism. And it's 
supposedly this third outpouring of the spirit in which uh, there's a new era of prophets and apostles who are going to come in to usher in the kingdom, right, and conquer those mountains. And so um, this idea was formulated by uh, a couple different people, but um, one of the main theorists behind the new apostolic reformation in that terminology is a guy called c peter wagner um, who worked in missions uh, studies at fuller theological seminary and he um, what's amazing to me about wagner's work is that he took um, he eventually was based out of colorado springs colorado which is where the space program is based out of yeah that's and, that's another that's another um Holy Land too. Yeah. Springs. Yeah. And so it was this amazing mix of like with Wagner, he took um, information operations like military strategy and psyops. And he took um, kind of a very militarized um, and then also kind of like a corporate leadership aspect. And he took all of these things, which you find in kind of like the, um, you know, like the the officer class of the military, and he combined it with uh, third wave Pentecostal concepts or third wave charismatic concepts, and was able to basically weaponize um, Christianity. And so he created these ideas of, and I mean, in their terminology and the way they think about it, like um, they have some, Wagner coined a term called strategic spiritual warfare. And so what you do is you go in, and you run demographics on an area and you figure out who, you know, in, in his terminology, you figure out who are the major gods there. Right. But in Los Angeles, it would be, you know, you go there and you basically do demographics like, OK, you have this many Latinos, you have this, you know, this in the black community and that. And then what are the different religions? The, the like, princes, the, the powers and principalities. Exactly. Yeah. You're figuring out. And so he took these these biblical terms and turned them into weaponized, uh, you know, social engineering concepts. And then instead of, you know, going one way or the other with it, he was able to kind of hold these things both where it's both social engineering and it's also has a spiritual religious component to it. And, you know, use the weight of that to kind of create this uh this weaponized form of christianity um which he was doing that in around like 79 and into the 80s um and it just it's it's exploded and it's basically it's infiltrated almost every denomination of christianity to some extent Um, you, you go in you find out the the power that is over the prince of the air that is over the city and you challenge them directly Right, and you wage this spiritual warfare against them. Right, uh, and in, you it's know, a lot like in, counter counterinsurgency operations. It's exactly like that, and that's right. what's amazing about it. I mean, he's literally weaponized Christianity. It's 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 absolutely it's it's astonishing to me, and it's um, it's scary in a lot of ways. I mean, you, in Brazil. Uh-huh. Um, on my blog, I have a, an article called uh, Third Wave Power Encounter in Brazil. And, um, I mean, they're killing people, right? Like, it leads to lynchings. It mm. leads to violence against indigenous yeah. people. It leads to violence against um, minority groups. And it's, you know, it's really frightening to see um, what would seem goofy on paper 
enacted in a way that literally leads to war on minority groups and on indigenous groups and you know groups that are you know outside the the veil of the the christian norm as these people see it um it's it's pretty because with that warfare terminology you're essentially calling other beliefs you know uh people with other beliefs enemies they're like right yeah well they well they say that the people aren't enemies but the powers that are over the people are enemies but what's the fine line there i mean you can easily you can easily cross that line yeah and that's you know and that's the when it becomes this uh depending on where it falls you know it can just be like a nice group of folks praying to have the the land healed or whatever or it can be like a violent encounter with brazilian you know paramilitarized police or something you know um i i have um the evangelical movement is very huge in brazil and um in fact now bolsonaro is he's an evangelical and the evangelicals in brazil absolutely adore him and love him similar to the way that they do trump here in the united states but um it it's interesting because i've i've actually been i've actually been to brazil and i've actually seen i've actually been to one of the services and here's this guy like looks like you know he's he's got the whole like evangelist hairdo you know what i mean the oral roberts kind of <laughs> yeah, kind of stuff voice. going on and yeah. it, you know he's he's up there just yelling in portuguese and like you know i i could understand a little bit of portuguese because i've been exposed to it for a while but like you know all of a sudden like this woman just starts shaking and he's performing an exorcism like right in front of me and i'm like having this moment of like where am i right now <laughs> <laughs> But it's, uh, yeah. Um, there's also, you, uh, Dr. Future, Mike, you know, he also talked about on Future Quake. Um, he t- I remember him talking about one of these guys that were uh, Dominionists and how this, uh, it was a woman, I can't remember her name, but she went to Mount Everest. She had this whole story where she said she went to Mount Everest and and she uh, she, she tackled some demon up on the on the on the hilltop and all this kind of stuff on the mountain and um i was going to ask you too david and uh, i kind of wanted to get you to explain some terms here in a second but um i was going to ask you too about um at the end towards the end of last year we had a lady on that actually lives here in nashville that was involved with this group growing up that she terms a cult called um king's chapel and they were apparently they were outside they were based in connecticut and if you ever get a chance to listen to her podcast which is called cult in connecticut where she basically interviews these people that have left it it's very much seems like it is one of these new apostolic reformation churches because one of the things that they would do is they would go to these different places and they would cast out the demons in the places like for instance, the one time they went to Alaska, and like they would pretty much make the congregation essentially give them all their money so they could go to Alaska, but they had to stay in the best hotels, eat the best food because they were doing such intense spiritual warfare, right, right, and, and all this kind of. I don't know if you've ever heard of that group, but uh, I 
I it's well it I haven't. There's uh there's a King's Chapel that was out in uh in Georgia close to where I'm at, but I don't think it's the same thing. They yeah, had their own kind of weirdness so. yeah. go they had their own kind of weirdness going on. I don't think it's the same group though. It was a it was a tape ministry that literally the, the pastor had died and they just had a ton of tapes. And so they would all sit in this abandoned I mean, it it wasn't abandoned, but the church was essentially abandoned. There was really no church anymore, and yeah. it was just some folks that would sit at tables and listen to these tapes on repeat. Wow. It, was, it was very. That's weird. It was yeah. It was it, it had a it had a spooky kind of uh, air to it. Um, but yeah, that was so. I don't think it's the same thing. But yeah, that sounds that sounds very much the the kind of tenor of the the new apostolic reformation idea. And one of the things with this stuff too is that they use a decentralized methodology. And that's so, you know, kind of getting into the like uh, nitty gritty of the these books being at the grocery store. Um, in conquering the media and conquering that mountain, one of the things you want to do is you want to get your ideas spread out as far as possible. And so the fact that you can go to, um, I found a C. Peter Wagner book on strategic spiritual warfare at a truck stop in one of the Carolinas. So, you know, here's a trucker that's, you know, or someone driving through the Carolinas and uh, they stop off and you look at the book rack and here's a book on strategic spiritual warfare. And this was a book that compiled um talks that were given at a conference right so this wasn't like just some like popular here's some ideas on spiritual warfare kind of book which in and of itself is kind of weird but this was literally conference papers given at one of their uh conferences on spiritual warfare and missions so um that that spread where it kind of you know you get that your your pastor gets that book and reads it and starts to implement these ideas and then they you know you have the different layers of organization in a decentralized organization where you have the outer layer which is the media uh, well i guess the, the true outer layer would be the ideas kind of being fostered in in popular culture then the next is the media that's fostering those ideas the next is those authors um anyone in authority at a church or in a, a prayer group or whatever who wants to contact those leaders can then contact the leader and if they have some kind of worth to the organization, those people can then be drawn deeper into the inner circles, you know. And so eventually you're going to, to Colorado Springs to a leadership conference to learn, you know, how to lead your congregation into victory against the devil. Um, kind of a, like a cell-based system, kind of like how, like uh – how Al Qaeda radicalized right. people. It's exactly. Except. It's exactly the. It's right. the. Exa it's exactly. And I mean, they've been called the American Al Qaeda. You right. know, they've been, well, not not the American Al Qaeda. Although you're right, Taliban. That is the, yeah, the American Taliban has been the name for it because they believe in what's essentially a Christian Shiara law, right? So, um, it's you know, and it's really interesting to see. I mean, it's basically a terrorist organization. You know, I mean, they're they they want to take over the world dominion for their concept of god um and and i think the the ambiguity for me is that i i don't know i don't know where the level of just like corruption is you know like i as studying in a in kind of a 
trying to study it in a, an academic or scholarly way, you always kind of want to give the benefit of the doubt and just kind of look at it objectively. Um, but recently, I've I've just started to kind of get to the point where I'm like, yeah, this is kind of bad. <laughs> you know, like this, <laughs> yeah. Like the influence that I'm seeing come out of this thing, like, isn't really positive. Like, this is this is you know, it's gone beyond my ability to be objective with this, and it's actually kind of dangerous for culture, um, especially when it gets into you know, um, violating people's rights and actually attacking you know groups that are that are. Uh, th- don't mean anything well these guys you know they really just they really want to set up a theocracy i mean that's kind of the main point of yeah and when you when you mentioned that tom horn and his group were against them that was true i mean when i would when i would listen to like that little crowd a lot that was i think they, they they did talk a lot about the about the new apostolic reformation and how that that was dominionism and stuff was not a good idea but I don't know now. I mean, things, yeah. have changed, things have changed so much that I have to wonder if they're not, like, trying to, if they're not, because, like, they're they're really in bed with Jim Baker. Yeah. And Baker <laughs> makes a, Baker makes a lot of comments about, I mean, it's, it's really not, like, the whole thing about Trump being Cyrus, King David, the man, the imperfect man that will, that will save save Christianity, mm. this type of thing. Um, there's not really much of a difference between that and what the new apostolic reformation and the dominionists preach in my opinion. No. I mean, it's just, it's not, you know, you're, you're really, you know, if, even if you're two different camps, the end result that you want is still yeah. the same. Well, in it, in right. these, in their naked ambitions that they admit to in, uh, conquering this mountain of government. I mean, they behave like a a classic uh, nefarious secret society. You know, it's it's like something we've definitely explored this stuff with with Doctor Future. But this idea of like just filling the government and big business as much as they can with their people. So I guess when the time comes or whatever, it's 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 pretty yeah. scary. And everything yeah. that people fear about secret societies. I mean, this is like. And, right there and there's other groups such as the family which is another one right. that has a whole other set of beliefs but still is very much you know courting men in power well and that's um, so that's the interesting thing though is that you know when you have these decentralized organizations um each named group can have a different belief but you know like uh Serfiel said is if you have the same kind of goals, right? Like different groups work to the same goal. And at the end, the goal is achieved. And it doesn't really matter, you know, that one was called the family and one was the new apostolic reformation. They all kind of like layer into each other because they're all decentralized. Um, and that's it's kind of, I mean, <laughs> at a certain, you know, at the beginning of my studies of this stuff, it was kind of like a cultural study. And now it's almost become like a, like, oh, wow, like this is kind of disturbing. Um, like a study of uh, of a of a terrorist organization, really, you know. Um, Political implications are. Yeah. Well, then, uh, yeah. I mean, and you we we see it. You know, there was a a letter that was written by a Catholic traditionalist to, uh, you know, from a position of some authority within the Vatican structure, not like from the Vatican, but within that, like some of the 
that it's a, a complicated kind of multi tentacled organization so but he's he's within some of the the more authoritative voices surrounding the vatican and he wrote a letter that literally had the same keywords as stuff that um skywatch tv and tom horn and that were putting out in the same like couple of days and then they actually they sourced another article that was on the place that this guy from the vatican this archbishop had published his letter um, they sourced in one of their articles the same website, not the same letter that he wrote, but the you know it was on the same website. And then two days later, they sourced his letter. You know, and these guys are supposed to be charismatic, anti-palpable, you know, all that kind of stuff. But they're obviously feeding from the same trough of of information. Right. They're using the same keywords. They're using the same ideas. And when you start to look at what, and this is what was fascinating to me and now kind of terrifying about Wagner, is that he turned all this stuff that was, you know, spiritual warfare and that, and he he really had a nuanced understanding of what, you know, because, you know, when you get into the... Uh, one of the the weird things with the when you when you look at these groups is that they know Greek, they know Latin, right? Like with the the most educated amongst these folks know the translations. And so when they read the Bible, they're not reading the the English translation. They're going back and saying, what did that word mean? What did this word mean? You know, And so when they read demon, they know that it goes back to the Greek word daemon. And they know the daemon, you know, and they know the difference between psyche and um, uh, the different words for soul that are used, pneuma, right? Like pneuma and psyche are two words that are translated in English as soul, but they mean two different things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, with the Chuck Missler being into Kabbalah and that, like, they go and they actually look at the original roots of these words, and they've been able to extract some kind of functional dynamic from that. You know, and so the ability to use ideas and words and understand when they say demon, you know, most people are thinking like some, and they, you know, they, a lot of them will write about it. Like you were describing that woman, like going up on a mountain and they fight a demon and there's this kind of uh, visionary experience that they have. Right. Um, but the, the weaponized version of it is that they understand that demon also means mindset and they know that the, the ability to manipulate ideas and to manipulate ideas through words is something that can be developed and and triggered in people and it becomes information warfare you know and so when you see someone an archbishop from the vatican circle publishing a letter that has the same keywords that um the skywatch folks and tom horn and that are publishing the question becomes what like what, like what exactly are we seeing here you know because this looks an awful lot like an information operation more than it it looks like uh something spiritual you know well let me ask you this because it, it, it's um, it's interesting that you brought this up. You bring up um, in this article, and this is something that I've thought of before. You bring up uh, the Conjuring, mm -hmm. and right, you, you just kind of talked about kind of like this kind of more charismatic kind of Catholic um, group that you know has kind of the same goals. And but you bring this movie up, and I have felt, and I think I mentioned this on the last episode, but I've I have felt like watching some of these movies since The Conjuring came out that whole kind of Conjuring universe with the Annabelle and all that kind of stuff. I've kind of felt like a lot of that. I feel like it's like kind of a pro traditionalist Catholic propaganda. 
Absolutely. Well, and it, it, it's, it's openly that. And that's the interesting thing. Like these, you know, um, it's one of the most popular, I, I don't know, I can't say the most popular, but it is one of the most popular horror franchises. And, um, you know, in terms of sales and people seeing it and that. And it was completely Catholic propaganda, like openly. You know, I mean, they, they were proud of that. Like that was, that was, that was a, the goal to, you know, uh, yeah. what they were doing was to kind of create Catholic propaganda and the Warrens themselves were part of, uh, uh, this weird sort of subculture of, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Malachi Martin and that, oh, yeah. um, yes. but oh, yeah. they're not, they're not Orthodox, but they still are kind of like soldiers for the in Catholicism there's a thing called the church militant and the church victorious so the church victorious is sort of the contemplative um, acceptance of God's dominion over the world anyway and it doesn't really matter who's in charge in the physical plane the church militant are the folks that go out to claim God's kingdom and so the Warrens were uh, part of this kind of strange underground of church militant folk who were not really orthodox in the the way that most people would think, but were kind of given the ability to go out and work within the kind of demonic realm to spread a semi-orthodox message. And it's hard to describe exactly the the kind of differentiation there. Well, you know, it, you know well, it, yeah. it seems like it's related to the idea of of crusade. And that they're they're really appealing to people and to that idea of crusade, yes. and in embracing the supernatural, also it 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 seems like it has appeal for both uh, Catholics and Protestants because many right. people don't resonate with that sterile modern Christianity. They they're you know putting something back into it for people, and then if you yeah. have that crusade element too, it's really it seems like a way of reinvigorating yeah. it. And you're right because that that's what that's what resonated for me was like really when I when I kind of first started was just like, you know, very much like there is a literal battle between good and evil. And yeah. I still kind of think that way in, in many ways, but it's like, you know, there's a literal battle between good and evil. And if, what side do you want to be on? We're in a war. You know, it's very much that kind of militant kind of Christianity. And, uh, but in the, the, in the Catholic realm, um, but one thing that I was going to say about this is that, David, you would be surprised, I think, just from – and it may cha be changing now, but, you know, back in earlier part of this decade when I was going to a lot of these conferences, a lot of these paranormal conferences, a lot of the stuff that would – a lot of that worldview, that very traditionalist Catholic, good versus evil, angels versus demons, that kind of worldview was very much a part of the paranormal the popular paranormal scene. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah, you that... had guys like you had the Warrens, but you had John Zaffis out there, um, you know, doing his, doing his thing. And just a lot of that was very, a lot of that was very, very dominant. Yeah. That's, that was, um, I forget the name of the guy. I actually went to a conference with, um, George Hansen, um, and Shannon Taggart up in New Jersey. And they had a, a guy who had um, studied with a friend of the Warrens, or he was a friend of the Warrens, and he brought that in. And it was essentially a, an occult conference. It wasn't even a paranormal conference. Like, it was practicing occultists. 
and this guy came to talk about uh, conjuration and exorcism. And, you know, it was, that was, even within the culture, it was, it was kind of bleeding in. Um, and that's, you know, and that's the, when you have something like the Vatican, which is a close to 2,000 year old organization, you know, they, <laughs> they know how to get their message out and they know how to do it in ways that, uh, you know, and it's, it's strange because it, it sounds like it's bleeding into conspiracy, but it's not conspiracy so much as just how information flows and how you get cultures to change and how you get minds to change you know um tim lahaye has a book called battle for the mind um which ironically is named uh after uh well not named after but it has the same or similar name to uh a book that was written by william sargent who was one of the guys from mk ultra Mm. um he did (laughs) uh studies in post-traumatic post-traumatic stress and uh you know what was called shell shock at the time um, mm-hmm. And then he went and studied voodoo techniques for inducing possession. He also has a book on uh, possession and that. Um, but he was one of the people that did shock therapy and, uh, you know, Thorazine treatment and that to kind of uh, basically break people's minds and, and kind of get into that. But um, so there's, you know, all these things kind of blend in together. I'm not. I'm not really into the conspiracy concept of it because to me it's just it's the way the world works you know I mean it's the yeah. way the information works it's the way people's right. minds work and if you want to control the culture you want to influence the culture you think your message is the way the culture should run eventually you're going to stumble when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. On stuff, that's the way you've got to do it, you know. Um, yeah. And they're, they're open about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean they're yeah, I mean they have books on it, you know, and that was the the um one of the articles I wrote uh an academic piece called Satan's Target Your Mind. Yeah. Um which was about spiritual warfare and the new apostolic reformation and the the idea of the grocery store grimoire and that and it was kind of, you know, along that lines of the good versus evil, but it's like who's evil? <laughs> you know, like who who truly is serving this this kind of uh, concept of a, a world dominating power? Is it, 
you know, the, the folks who are doing uh, folk magic to heal people and, you know, this folks that are kind of, you know, like uh, in vo- like Vodun, where it's it's a community practice, where it brings everybody together. Um, or is it these people who are literally trying to conquer the world with, uh, you know, manipulative kind of information warfare techniques? And, are the, the ones that have already conquered the world and are trying to hold on to it? Yeah, you know, that's the... Yeah. And I want to make something clear, though, too, that, like, I'm not trying to, like, I'm not, like, you know, dogging Catholicism, but I find it interesting that when you're just watching a simple movie, a film, these ideas can still just seep in. And a lot of people just aren't aware that that what they're being, that what is happening is, like, you have this subtle propaganda. Yeah. Well, and that's. There's an ideology to it. Yeah, and right. and a worldview too. I mean, it's it's literally shaping the way that you view phenomena, um, you know. And that was one of the the one of the things that really connected me to Diana Pasolka's work was that that was that was why she went and consulted on the Conjuring movies. Was she wanted? Well, that's to right. See, she did. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and she wanted to see as a scholar um, how do how do these media techniques um, alter people's memories and how do they alter people's worldviews and how do they alter the way that people literally live their lives and encounter this stuff? Because, um, you know, I've studied parapsychology for quite a while. And so to me, the phenomena is real to, to whatever extent that's true, right? Like um, there is something out there. There are these things that, that people can do, whether it's precognition or uh, psychokinesis and that, um, you know, and then how does the media shape our interpretation of those events? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, even the Exorcist movie, the, uh, the, the actual case that that movie and that book is based on, um, originally the Lutheran, pastors who dealt with the child who was you know supposedly possessed they went to the rhine center and they were like we think that we have a pk we think that we have a a psychokinetic kind of poltergeist experience going on here and so you know then you get that filtered through the media and you have the exorcist movie in the book which say that it's a demonic possession and all the rest of this stuff. Right. And then to the point where then the movie itself is considered cursed and there's all these different things that happen with it where, you know, um, people came to bad ends and people die and all the rest of it. And so, you know, as this yeah. thing filters through culture, suddenly you have this, you know, story which historically looks like it was a kid who had, was experiencing a kind of psychokinetic outburst that was causing some phenomena to happen around him to becoming a cursed movie and, uh, you know, this movie that convinced people to come back to Catholicism and that. And, you know. and if, you look at, if you look at that case, not only was he kind of like the appropriate age, although it's mostly around girls but you know boys well, no. experience it too no, that's that's the other so that's an interest just just very quickly that's another interesting thing christopher lorson's research so the folks are interested in poltergeists and uh that kind of concept christopher lorson has done extensive research um on the the historical development of our idea that poltergeists are uh you know preteen girls you know, experiencing this like hormonal change and that, and historically, it's actually not accurate. 
um, poltergeist phenomena can happen at any time to any person um, that are under stressful experiences, you know, kind of a stressful situation yeah. or an abusive situation. Um, right. And that was going to be my other point was that th- there's there's the possibility that he was abused by his sexually abused by his aunt. Right. So there's there's a lot there was a lot going on there. And I mean, you can really look at it, exorcism in, in a sense, because like the normal like people have it all wrong. I don't know if you watched William Friedkin's documentary that he did about exorcism. But uh, a lot of what exorcism really is is kind of more like this kind of therapy. It's a therapy, essentially. Right. It's right. not, you know, pea soup and levitating, and <laughs> even though that can happen. But, like, you know, the, the, it's, if you actually see a real exorcism, it's essentially the person expressing themselves very violently and then calming down because they've been giving this religious kind of justification to to be calm and to have be somewhat at peace and what it actually is, you know, we don't really essentially know, but it's just like, you know, I think that there's a lot, there's probably a lot going on there in the person's psyche and they right. need that calming and they need that religious ritual to make that happen. Yeah, I can, exactly. I can definitely see that. Um, like you were, you were referring to earlier, like um, the way Pasolka was analyzing how, we're so mediated in that the media controls how people process these phenomenon. So I guess that's one of the seven mountains for them to conquer Right. would, would be the media because if they can get people to uh, embrace the supernatural and then they control the references and media that they process the supernatural through, that kind of solidifies them into that worldview. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, and... Um one of the things I found interesting when I was researching the Satan's Target Your Mind piece was that um, I was subscribed to a bunch of uh, of Dominionist uh, newsletters and that kind of thing. And one day I got an email um, from this one called The Elijah List, and they were recommending a CD that um, supposedly had a supernatural third tone. That was added while this person was uh, was you know composing their music, right? Um, and at, at the time, uh, you know, I do some like uh, soundscape production and stuff on my own, and so I was I was looking at isochronic beats and uh, binaural beats, also because I'm interested in the the Monroe uh, uh, Institute and their work, you know, and so an out of body experience. Uh, they, you know, the Monroe Institute has developed a, a Robert Monroe developed a, a sound structure to induce out-of-body experiences using binaural and isochronic uh, tones. So, um, what's interesting about the binaural beat is that it's a it it's a stereo function that basically the way that the the waveforms go in the different stereo channels it makes your brain create a third tone that actually isn't there and so when i saw this like you know this this third supernatural tone coming in i was like whoa wait a second like you're literally you're you're putting a supernatural spin on on binaural or isochronic tones and so i listened to the thing and sure enough it was you know a kind of uh like amateur synth piece that had 
uh, isochronic or binaural beats in it, right? And so I was like, you guys are, you know that this stuff will cause hallucinations in susceptible people. So if you, if you look at the, the, if you look at the, the science of hypnosis, there's a certain percentage of people that are, are easily hypnotically suggestible, right? And so if they hear this kind of stuff, they're going to start to have an induced experience. And then, uh, you know, a certain percentage outside of that percentage will still have the experience but not be quite as suggestible. And so when you think about the entire kind of framework that's happening here where someone's reading, you know, a Tom Horn book about Nephilim stargates and they're listening to this, you know, third supernatural tone and they're getting tripped out on, you know, because they, they sold these things, they sold isochronic tone and binaural beat music as uh, like audio drugs. Like it was actually marketed uh, to some extent as you can get high off this music. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and you and you probably could. Yeah, you actually can. Yeah, if you're within that percentage that's susceptible to this stuff, or if you allow yourself to be, you know, you'll you'll actually have kind of a it'll it'll definitely trigger some changes in the way that you're you're perceiving things. And so, you know, if you think of the full environment, the media environment that's happening here, where somebody's going to church. And they're hearing this, you know, their pastor's telling them about this. And then they're going home and they're reading, you know, whatever book that they're they're interested in that, that ties into this kind of concept. And then they're listening to this thing. And the instructions in the list, you know, marketing for it were, um, it's, you know, God-given sound that you should listen to 24 hours a day. Right? <laughs> so I was like, I was like, wait, wait, like you're literally this is you're you're setting people up to just be completely tripped out on this music reading this stuff about supernatural experiences and and um supernatural living and living in the spirit and all that and when they listen to this they're going to have an altered state of consciousness it's it's the way that this stuff works it's what it does especially if you do it on headphones um and so they're literally creating this reality for people you know and and whether or not anything actually weird is happening, they're going to be tripped out on it, and they're going to be reading some pretty tripped out material, you know. And then they go watch The Conjuring, like you're talking about, you know, and it's starting to change their, wow. you know. And The Conjuring, in and of itself, has sound design, visual design, um, the frequency at which they do flicker rate, and you know, on the screen, and the frequency at which images are flashed. You know, subliminal stuff, right? So you've got subliminal music, subliminal visuals, subliminal writing. And that was one of the things I found with uh, reading a lot of this material was that it was written like mnemonic structures. So it was written as a memory structure, you know. I think we've touched on that before, how much uh, I think me and you have touched on it at the during the uh, Conspiranormal chat we had about how this is a lot of this is related to neurolinguistic programming. Right, right. So, you know, the very language of it that's written in a way that it's it's easily digestible and it's easily manipulating the way that you perceive things. So you've right there, you've got like a perfect storm of making people, you know, alter their worldview and alter the way they experience yeah. life. Changing you your know. whole frame. Right. And I didn't, so the interesting thing to me was that I didn't think that that was a theory as I was looking at all these different components. And it wasn't until recently where I talked to somebody who was uh, deployed in Afghanistan and he was reading this stuff and he was listening to the supernatural music 
and he was you know experiencing all that and he was like he read the satan's target your mind piece and said yeah that's exactly what happened to me so here was a, a an active military guy deployed in afghanistan who was reading this material who was listening to the music who was in a war zone so you know the century already heightened yeah already way heightened in that and you know he was like yeah that's exactly what happened that that is exactly what happened to me and so for me having kind of speculated on it having seen the component parts when he told me that i was like oh man <laughs> like this is and that's kind of where my i went from like the stuff's kind of interesting as a cultural artifact to being like this is kind of dangerous you know this is kind of not not a not necessarily a positive thing for our culture <laughs> but it sounds like an entire initiation system is what it all makes up yeah. absolutely yeah you well, know you think of the the great pyramids in that there's a lot of material you can find on um, using the the uh, king's chamber and the great pyramid it's within the it's within the occult literature as well as you know being actively deployed in the the popular Christian culture. So, well, it it seems to me, and a, a lot of this is coming from the charismatic side. In fact, just yeah. about all of it really is. And it seems to me that a lot of the charismatic stuff, like somebody has read something, has gotten an idea. Are there in some kind of like if you think about like where charismatic Christianity started, it was Azusa Street in the 1920s, right? I think that's right. correct. Well, if you, if you look yes. at that was, if you that look was at kind of, of it, yeah, if you kind of like look at what's going on in in 1920s in LA, you got a lot of stuff happening. I mean, you got Theosophy, Manly P. Hall, you got all this kind of interesting. All these ideas are just in this milieu. And then all of a sudden, they just pick up on these things. And I've noticed this about charismatic Christianity, that there's a lot of things that you'll see. And in fact, that's been a critique from some of the more kind of stolid, more mainstream Christian people that they have picked up on, like, these concepts. Like, the, for instance, like the laughing churches, which is essentially right. Kundalini. Right. Todd, Todd Bentley is one of the guys that oh, is huge on that. Yeah, but you gotta you gotta uh, talk about Todd Bentley's other thing, which is kicking people in the face. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, that, <laughs> that that too, that too. Um, so it just it, and and there's there's even stuff that's just like you know straight up just necromancy, like yeah, the, the idea of of raising people from the dead. Well, the grave sucking too. I mean, the grave sucking thing was something that like that made me make uh, um, like Photoshop collages. The concept of grave sucking. Have you read about that? I have not. What is grave sucking? Oh man, <laughs> grave sucking is amazing. So the grave sucking was uh, the Vineyard <laughs> Movement. Um, one of their offshoot groups um, decided that. And Benny Hen actually did this as well, um, but no, okay. I don't. Think, he didn't. He didn't term it grave sucking, but he did. He did do the practice. But the um, it was the I believe it was the Vineyard Movement, um, which is a Canadian uh, the Toronto Blessing, which is supposedly like the second or third Azusa Street kind of revival, like outpouring of the spirit sort of thing. But um, they. They go to graves of famous charismatic evangelists and they um, they absorb the mantle. 
and they absorb the the kind of like charismata that's on the grave and there's a i think it's in ezekiel there's something there there's something about touching the bones of the forefathers in um, one of the prophetic books that they that they draw on as their their inspiration but they actually go and lay on a grave and like inhale the the inspiration that this former evangelist had um and it, it got the popular term of grave sucking or grave soaking. Uh, and there's, you know, <laughs> there's there's photos of, uh, you know, pastors' wives yeah. and youth groups and stuff, like going to, like, Catherine uh, Kuhlman's grave. And Catherine Kuhlman's a famous uh, revivalist preacher um, from L.A., I believe. Um, uh, that, yeah, they would go to these graves and they would they would lay on the, on the thing and absorb the mantle. So that was, that was... That to me, I mean, just that, like you said, the necromantic element of that was just too much. I just couldn't, I couldn't quite handle. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's there's a certain amount of like ancestor worship in there too. Yeah, and that's the, yeah. that whole idea. Well, and it's you know for me like too, it, it's interesting because it does tie into this kind of, uh, you know, the idea of the communion of saints. There is a historical precedence for believing that all the saints are still alive and that they do exist in kind of a. Um, you know, a, a space of living that they, they don't ever die. And so they are there to be accessed, um, you know, and that, that gets into denominational questions of, of what that means. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, they, they, there's some kind of haphazard adoption of these ideas that gets kind of, kind of funky. Can you, can you define the third wave charismatic? I'm not familiar with that term. It's it's a term for um, so the uh, you had the Azusa Street revival, right? And there were um, actually I don't know there, there's a couple different ones that could be the like first and second. So you had the you had the um, there were revivals that happened in the 1800s, which is why I kind of got hesitant on the idea that Pentecostalism, you know, going to Azusa Street was really the first of the charismatic because there were what was called enthusiasm and perfectionism um, in the 1800s, which was um, actually stemming out of the burned over district in New York, mm -hmm. which um, is where you get uh, the spiritualism as well. Um, and, and that kind of coincided also with the ghost dance movement, um, which was an apocalyptic kind of charismatic movement in the First Nations um groups um and then so that was in that was in the 1800s then you get the the azusa revival in the early 1900s then you get um the uh 1946 you get what was known as the healing revival where it was a lot of tent preachers um that's where oral roberts comes out of um uh who are the lester summerall um, and a lot of the, this is, uh, this, so in the Azusa street, there wasn't a lot of, uh, exorcism focus in the healing revival. It was heavily exorcist, uh, um, focused. AA Allen was, uh, a popular preacher at the time. They had these tent revivals. They had, um, television shows. Um, you know, that's where kind of Oral Roberts comes out of that tradition. Benny Hen kind of comes out of the healing revival tradition as well. Um, and then the third wave is the Toronto blessing and, uh, the laughing, uh, you know, 
charismatic experience in that um and that kicking people kicking people in the face kicking people in the face to knock the thing and so the kicking people in the face actually comes from this guy smith wigglesworth who was part of the around the azusa street time he was a a uk preacher who used to punch people he was known for when they when they died when they died he would demand you know that death has no victory and he would punch them and um you know according to the dead people in the coffin yeah or something? yeah well they would be it'd be like he'd come to their deathbed right like because it was you know, <laughs> oh, this is God. this is before like this is before funerary practice was as um as kind of sterile as it is now so you would go to the wake and like just punch somebody and like they would come <laughs> they would according to the anecdotes come back to life um <laughs> Now though, with the, you know, I, I and I know I'm all over the place here, but this stuff is just so like, I mean, I don't. Most people don't actually like get to experience these these concepts or whatever. But there's actually a dead raising uh, movement, which I think is what yeah. you were talking about, right. yeah. which um, is it's actually uh, like a niche kind of genre within the charismatic movement and it's it's focused on raising the dead and there's you know there was a i don't know if it was a tv show they did do a documentary called like the dead raisers and it was you know it's these people that i'm actually subscribed on facebook to a group um where it's you know folks who who practice this dead raising thing and they'll post a picture of someone who's dead or a picture of them in the hospital prior to them having died. And then they'll ask for them to be, uh, you know, in the name of Jesus to raise up and be alive. And it's kind of, it's weird to me cause it's, it's sad in some ways. Cause you see like, you know, they'll, they'll grab people like from news articles that have died or, or whatever. And they'll be, they'll be praying for this person's, physical resurrection huh. and you you know it's that sounds, know. A, that sounds a little wow. like the mormon genealogy stuff i've seen uh i've seen benny hinn do that too he was i've seen him instruct uh that he sees somewhere out there on the other side of the television someone is there with their relative in a coffin and bring the coffin in front of the the tv screen and they're being raised <laughs> Right. Oh my gosh. That, right. Yeah, that was probably like over 20 years ago, but I, I remember that. You could probably find it still on YouTube or something. Um, wow. This is crazy stuff, man. And we're not, you know, I don't want people to think we're like on some big witch hunt, you know, looking for heterodoxies. Um, but when there's, um, you know, political ambitions and things that aren't so great for everyone. Um, it's good to take a look at uh, what's what's behind all this, you know. Yeah, and that's the you know, and that's that's um, I I didn't have any. I mean, because you know, studying parapsychology, a lot of the things that these people talk about as as being true, I don't know about the dead raising thing, but up to you know, but you know, even within that, there may be some truth to a lot to some of the claims. You know, yeah. um, these are practices that have obviously, you know, survived since antiquity. Right. You know, I mean, with faith healing and that, I've met, um, I've met faith healers outside of the Christian tradition within the, um, you know, uh, kind of southern folk magic tradition, and um, you know, or crossing over. Some actually, 
most of the people that I've met who practice what people would call hoodoo and that, um, which isn't a term that anybody uses down here, but um, the they've been within a Christian church. And that was one of the yeah. things I found kind of funny was that it was only because I was comfortable with charismatic congregations and comfortable with Christianity that I actually had any access whatsoever to right. people who practice these things that most people would think of were a cult or witchcraft or magic and that. Um, and it was, it was because, you know, I was, I was open to the Christian aspect and then they allowed me to, uh, hear about the other kind of practices that they did, which were still within what they understood as Christianity. You know, um, it just wasn't what, uh, you know, orthodox, uh, strict doctrinal, uh, denominations would consider that, you know. What what are some of your techniques for getting people to open up about this stuff? I mean, I guess you kind of hinted at it, uh, letting them know you're familiar with their religious background. Uh, but other than that, do you have a, or are you just one of those people that people open up to? Um, I listen and I don't judge. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and right. I'm more I'm more concerned with with people than I am with ideas. So I don't I'm not out there like hunting for right. stuff. You know, I'm not I'm not eager to hear their their secrets or anything. Um so um I'm just I'm open to hear about people's lives and about you know because a lot of um a lot of the stories that I've heard about people's relatives that that have practiced something or um or that it's it's been in the the context of uh, sharing their memories of somebody that they loved, you know, mm. um, and and sharing that kind of connection that they have to their past. And I personally have that kind of connection to my family and to uh, you know my grandparents and my great grandparents and that. Um, and so being able to have a, a memory of my own history. Um, helps me to connect with folks in that way and then um you know one instance where i was i was actually (laughs) i was working at a charismatic food ministry um through my brother when i first moved down here and um it was it was in the context of working there that i got to experience the pleading of the blood um which is a an interesting uh charismatic practice of literally calling down the blood of christ on everything kind of visualizing that happening like the the crucifixion and the blood pouring off of the crucifixion onto your your physical space and your body and all that um and the person who did that um later uh one of the the one of our co-workers got a call where her daughter had gotten a severe burn while she was at home and um when that was mentioned, he asked her if uh, she wanted him to go and talk out the fire. And so knowing what that meant, which is it's a Southern practice of um, there's certain passages in the Bible that you can read over a burn that will supposedly heal it. Um, In the fact that I knew what that practice was, I already worked with them, um, you know, and all that. So I was able to talk to him about it in a way. And also to not not uh i wasn't i wasn't like uh i don't know how to put it like he knew that i wasn't 
I wasn't overly credulous, you know, so I wasn't like, ooh, what is that? And I also wasn't like dismissive, you know, so I was in a neutral space where I was like, that's interesting. Like, what, what are you, what are you doing here? You know, so I guess just honesty about where I'm, I'm coming from, you know. One thing that I wanted to ask you, David, um, and I've, we've noticed this from talking to guys like Jack Montgomery and Tony Kale and even Timothy Renner, um, especially about like the powwow tradition. Um, you know, because we, we've, we've kind of talked about some of the like the, the newer kind of charismatic stuff that is kind of drawn on like kind of these 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 newer, like older occult beliefs. And they come from, they're probably probably really borrowed sometime in the 20th century. But then you're also dealing with what you, like something you just talked about, which is an older folk tradition. Right. It's something that is essentially, for the last 2,000 years of Christianity has been around, has essentially been concurrent with Christianity. Right. Has been parallel to it. And... I've noticed really like the kind of the study of folk religion, which I've become more and more fascinated with is how it really has this Christian veneer and has for centuries. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's it really only in the, um, probably in the 1800s, maybe in the 1700s, um, where it, it drifted off from that. Um, and that was mainly a kind of an elite, um, purposeful distancing from Christianity. So you had, there was kind of like a Druid revival that happened in the 1700s um, and the 1800s, um, pulling away from that. But even within that, like you have Blake talking about Druidism and he's still tying it into uh, Christianity. Um, and yeah, it, I mean, a lot of the, the stuff that... Um, people would think of as witchcraft and that like they it if you look at the old incant there's a book called the carmina gaelica which is like the song of the the gaelic people um and it was connect it was collected by uh i think his name was alexander carmichael but it was all these incantations and spells and that and they're all christian for the most part um and when they're not christian they're influenced through Christianity, right? Like it's a, it, it may have some uh, Celtic deities mentioned, like Brigid and that, but um, they're through um, a kind of Christian veneer, and it's it's interesting because this kind of like anti-Christian idea comes from the evangelicalism and the the weaponized Christianity that has turned against these things, you know. Um, like one of the jokes in like a rural area is you've got Baptists and you got country people, right? And so like country people make moonshine and sometimes the Baptists do too, but um, they don't talk about it. But <laughs> you know the um, the country folks they don't care. <laughs> they're just they're living their lives. They just want to survive. They do what works. You know they've got a story or a tradition that was passed down through their family and they continue it. Um, they go to church because that's where everybody goes. They, you know, worship God because God is good, right? Like it's real, it's, and, and it's not to simplify it or to, to make it look like it's, you know, just uh, this simple weird thing. But there's a difference between the Baptists who connect to this kind of world system and the country folks who just 
try to do what they need to do to get by for the next day, you know, and make their family safe and keep their family safe. Um, and a lot of these folk traditions carry through, you know, the country folks. Um, and that, you know, that means that it, it exists in the church. You know, it means it exists mm-hmm. in their church. It, and, and these churches, you know, they're not uh, they're not connected to any. It's it's really strange because I can I can picture living in the suburbs of Chicago and the way that I viewed the world and how the world works, and then living down here in rural Georgia, which is only uh, you know its own kind of microcosm of that. But um, I think that anyone living in a suburban or an urban area maybe more so in the urban area, they might understand it, but the rules don't apply. You know, like these structures and these systems that everybody thinks exist that kind of shape things, they don't exist. And when you're out in the country, like, they did, they definitely don't exist, you know. Um, and so these kind of denominational ideas or these ideas of what Christianity is or isn't, um, you know, the Bible is a place to record your family, right? Like I've got a, a Bible from my uh, my mom that has my my uh, like family line in it, my whole family tree written in it. And she had a Bible that was from the 1800s that had a family line written in it. Um, you know, and they're not they're under your understanding of the Bible is not shaped by other books or media is shaped by what you're told and what you live and how you experience that. And it's a totally different way of experiencing Christianity and this concept. And I would say it would be the same thing if you go to, um, I, I've done some uh, research on rural Sufism, mm-hmm. which is kind of ecstatic, charismatic practice of Islam versus um, state-sponsored Sufism. And the rural, what was interesting to me about the the rural versions of of Sufi practice was that they were very similar, if not exact, to the practices of the snake handlers in the South, including self-harm and the rest of it, ecstatic dances and and that kind of thing. Um, You know, and and I think you could even find it in like, um, you know, uh, Haitian Vodun, where you're going to find a difference between a kind of an elite practice of it and a kind of systematic, almost state-sponsored practice of it versus what you're going to find in a mountain somewhere in Haiti, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these folk traditions and these folk practices, you know, they they come out of living life. They come out of what works, you know. Um, the, uh, the dowser that I heard about from this the area that I'm living in now, who was 108 years old when he died, um, you know, he lived through the Spanish flu, and uh, he was known as a local healer. Um, he was known to heal what was it's called thrush, it's or thrash, it's a fungal infection that happens in babies. Um, and you know, now people would go to the hospital and get it healed, but back then they had these folks who could supposedly heal it through different you know practices and he was able to do that and then him being able to do that oftentimes that appeared as a child or as a teenager and that would be what led you then into being known as a healer for other things um whether it was talking out the fire or stopping blood flow um and so you know he could do these practices and then he could also douse which was you know the ability to find water which nowadays you go out with some seismic equipment or you look at a, a 
a map of the area and you figure out the you know the way the land is laying and where the different uh you know aquifers are and that kind of thing you can figure out where the water is you know back then it was if you're gonna you know if you're gonna drill down 100 feet you're gonna want to know that you're drilling 100 feet and somewhere good you know or if even worse if you're gonna dig by hand right like 100 feet down you're gonna want to know where that is so these things have to work yeah Um, and that's i think something that gets missed now when we can just go to some other method that works better or seems to work better um it's missing the fact that you know back when these things were were truly practiced and practiced regularly they had to work like it's not it's not like you know like oh we'll get the dowser out here and it's kind of witchy and fun and like it's going to happen like no if your dowser didn't find you where the water was you just spent like how long digging 100 feet down by hand uh (laughs) you know i mean that's a miserable especially in georgia like you're digging out, you know, like when did you yeah. do that during the like freezing, damp, horrible winter or during the awfully hot, sweaty summer? Either way, digging 100 feet down in the ground is going to be a miserable experience, you know. It's 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 practical. Yeah. Well, it's just real important, I think, to document what what's left of the, these local flavors, um, you know, as the suburbs encroach more into one giant shopping center and mega churches um you still you know have a lot of this stuff left and hopefully it can be preserved and a lot of these traditions do continue on yeah i don't you know it's interesting because where i'm at like there's a lot of abandoned houses um there's a lot of memories you know um that was my grandfather's house or that was, you know, uh, Mr. So-and-so's house. That, mm-hmm. was, that was the general store. Um, and it's, you know, slowly being... Incre- where, I, where I was previously living when we talked last, there was a lot more of that because Athens and UGA was pushing out into that area. Um, where I'm at now, there's not quite as much of that. Um, but yeah, it's, you know... But these things always change, you know, I mean... Right. It's, People will always be lacking resources and having to do things to get the resources, you know. Very interesting stuff. I, you know, I kind of wanted to get to a little bit of your thoughts about the the relation between folk magic and and psi. Yeah, I mean that's that's been amazing to me. And um, since Chicago, um, you know, the DeLorence books that I mentioned, the William Walker Atkinson books. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I noticed was that the instructions that they gave for clairvoyance were the same thing you were going to find at the um, the Stanford Research Institute remote viewing uh, research, right? Like the the protocols that were given were very similar. So instead of uh, you know you could you could pick up a book from the early 1900s and get the kind of, you know, top level, like government science research onto clairvoyance that, you know, from this 1900s book, you know, um, and then moving down here and really living in it where, you know, I had this one experience where I went to uh, a folk arts festival at an antique shop that I'm fond of. That's, um, that was down the road from where I was living and, uh, every single person there, had what would be described as a psi experience that they would talk about openly 
you know, whether it was um, experiencing their husband after they passed or an out-of-body experience or a premonition, you know, precognition or something. And they were all very open about it, but they didn't use the parapsychological terms, you know. And it really showed me how these things are a kind of living fact of being human and just being who we are. And, you know, parapsychology is the science of studying that, um, but it was amazing to see it just kind of like alive. And then you think about these, uh, you know, the, the kind of folk magic traditions which sort of codify that in the same way that parapsychology seeks to codify it through science. Um, and, the, you know, I, I think that it's very, Psy kind of drives that. And one of the things that was really interesting to me is that... Um, there's a, a fellow from up north of me called Ed Edwards, that's his name, um, who he's from the same county that Deliverance was filmed in, right? <laughs> so you think of the movie Deliverance and you think about that uh, that kind of uh, picture of, of the South, you know, which... Yeah, not, well, however, not, however accurate that would be, you know, not very, not, not very flattering. Yeah. No, yeah. That, although I got to tell you, the guy who plays the kid who plays banjo in Deliverance, like, still performs at uh, at festivals down here. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah he. Uh, <laughs> so that that's still a, uh, you know, he's a he's a proud uh, local representative. Um, the but he comes from that county. He. Um, worked with folks that had were basically he from <laughs> from rural north georgia he ended up working with people at the university of chicago who had worked with um fermi and some of the guys who worked on the manhattan project okay <clears throat> he was studied for years in the parapsychology labs for his ability to um foster psychokinetic activity he's currently being studied by the university of virginia the only reason that he has the abilities that he has is because his mom was a faith healer hmm. and his mom he got sick when he was a kid his mom practiced faith healing on him <coughs> which seems to um the tradition that she was taught in seems to have something to do with accessing some kind of psychokinetic ability. Um, she basically flooded his system when he was still in development with this. Um, and he was around it all the time and always practicing the kind of techniques that he was taught to foster this ability. And now he's working with labs across the United States to demonstrate the ability. You know, and so um, it's to me that was Ed's like Ed's kind of like the perfect example of how, you know, these folk traditions and, uh, you know, what they were doing in the Stargate program and the rest of it are just so closely and intimately tied and how, you know, these two kind of spheres of like high science and like low magic are um they're on the same spectrum, you know, and they both need each other. Hmm. Cool. We had a real cool discussion here, kind of yeah. all over the place. Uh, but just hope, uh, instead of listening to those, uh, what was the name of that, uh, 
the supernatural sounds. What, what was that stuff called? <laughs> no, they got it. You got You guys got to insert some uh, isochronic tones underneath this. Isochronic, right? yeah. Yeah, get them. Get the audience primed. For I'll just I'll just listen to Tangerine Dream, man. <laughs> Put on isochronic tones. Yeah. <laughs> well, David, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a really great pleasure having you on. Uh, to tell people where they can find you, is like find some of your work and. Um, you know, yeah. if they want, if they're interested in uh, in in contacting you or, or just all that good stuff. Uh, DavidMetcalf.wordpress.com is probably the best place to read all my ramblings. Um, David B Metcalf on Twitter, uh, which I occasionally post to, and uh, yeah, you know, happy to to field any questions or anything. Okay. And also on academia.edu, uh, if people are on that, uh, is where my more uh, serious stuff is. Okay, well, excellent, excellent. Um, it's been great to have you. Um, stay on the line for us. Uh, we're going to close out this section. And guys, we will be back on Conspiratormal. normal guys that was a great conversation with david metcalf always enjoy having david on i think i could probably talk to that guy for hours and we did talk to him for hours (laughs) (laughs) because after the very smart guy after that conversation we talked for another about uh 20 30 minutes on a patreon episode which you guys will hear pretty soon and also we talked for another like 20 minutes about some other things. So we just enjoy talking to David tonight and also want to remind everybody, David will be part of our, he will be part of our strange realities conference, which was going to be online this year. So by the time that you guys hear this, everything should be up. We're going to probably have some special pricing, but for, for most people, it's probably going to be about uh, $20 is going to be the price for this thing. And we got some really good people, so stay tuned for more information on that. So If you don't know, now you know. And, and guys, too, we mentioned Patreon before, and Sergio can tell you how to access that. You can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal to become a part of our secret society. And with... <laughs> Each step in a higher pledge per month, you will be awarded ancient wisdom, lesson plans, and secret degrees. <laughs> yes. Again, that's at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Or for one-time payments, if you don't want anything reoccurring, you can just go to conspiranormal.com. And please leave those iTunes reviews. Please, guys, leave those. And if you've left them... Since we recorded this on June the 16th, then thank you. And also, don't forget the YouTube channel. Give us a subscribe on there. That's at uh, Conspiranormal Podcast. All right, guys, that's pretty much it. Uh, Join us next week. We're going to have more Conspiranormal weirdness on this show. Conspiranormal.
you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.